the scriptures. Let's look together this morning in Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to read this entire chapter to you. Um, and just to give you a heads up, what the, the title you see in the bulletin, the outline, just pretend it's not there. Actually, you can focus on one thing. Um, I give you a title and then I give you two points. Uh, dependence on grace. You see that in there? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the importance of place. So originally, I had planned on putting two things that actually rhymed. Dependence on grace, importance of place. Just to help me remember it, if nobody else. But this morning, we're going to look at dependence on grace. So this is what I think Jonah 4 has for us today. Dependence on grace. So hear this. I'm going to read this. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to jump right in. Jonah 4, trying to understand dependence on grace. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we're here because we need your word. We need your truth. We need the gospel. As you know, Lord, we are in danger of living by lies all the time. Trying to justify our own existence, trying to fake it, thinking that what we do is meaningless. Lord, encourage us with your word here. Take your word and the truth that is there and show us ourselves, show us sin, show us even more than that, the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you for promising that your word will not return void. Cause it to produce much fruit in our lives. Help us to see Jesus and help us all to depend, to depend on grace. I pray all these things, that all glory would go to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Amen. As we look at Jonah chapter 4, it's quite an enigma, isn't it? It's strange to read of this amazing story of Jonah going to a land where people were full of violence and rebelling against God, and God changes them. And yet, we might think Jonah should be ecstatic. You know, a city that was against Jonah and his people is now turning from their anger and turning from their evil, and now they are turning toward God, the God of Jonah and the God of Jonah's people. You would think Jonah would be ecstatic, right? You would think that he would be excited and praising God, and yet what we find is Jonah is not only unhappy. Jonah is actually angry. And Jonah is not simply angry. He's that angry where he is angry enough to die. He has that kill me now sense of life. God end it. It's quite ironic. It's an enigma. It's even perhaps to you, it might even be a gigantic letdown. You might read Jonah 4 and think, man, this is really, really disappointing. But remember, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the enigma, in the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of all of this, God is pursuing Nineveh, and God is pursuing Jonah, and God is pursuing us. He is pursuing our hearts. Do you know how we know that? Because God, in the midst of all this going on in chapter 4, God asks a question. It's recorded for you in verse 4, and it's recorded for us in verse 9. You see, the gospel, the gospel is deeply and profoundly relational. God never looks at you as a project. He never looks at me as a project. He never, he never acts with Jonah as if it's some big prank or some joke. The message that Jesus has come into this world and died and was resurrected to glorify God by paying the penalty for our sins. That message, that declaration is fundamentally relational. And we know that because God is continuing to pursue Jonah and us through all of this because he asks questions. Have you ever thought about the significance of asking questions? Todd and I were talking one day about you know, in our, our roles in Presbytery and other roles in interviewing people and talking with people. And Todd shared with me this book. And this guy defined a good question as this. Personal, ambiguous, and invokes anxiety. You ever experienced some of those questions? Well, the question that God poses to Jonah and to us is deeply personal it is definitely ambiguous to some extent, and it definitely provokes and evokes anxiety. God says this, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? You know those questions that come across as, you know, the, the question you're actually trying to figure out so you can tell the person the right answer? You know the question that comes out and you answer it, but you actually figure out the person that was asking you the question was just ready, getting ready to pull a bait and switch on you? You know those? 
You know the trick questions too. You know the trap questions. Well, this is profoundly, profoundly different. God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And God continues to pursue Jonah through that question because he asks it again in verse 9. But what happens in the middle is also highly important. Remember the plan. We didn't talk about that last week, and we're going to talk about it this week. In between these questions, God raises up a plan. Look at it in verse 6 through 9. God sees what's going on with Jonah, and God appoints a plant. He introduces the plant. God raises up this plant so that it would be a shade for Jonah, so that Jonah would feel some relief. You see, God saw, as verse 6 tells you, that Jonah was full of discomfort. And because Jonah was discomforted, God said, well, I'll raise up a plant. God caused this plant to grow up very quickly, and it provided shade for Jonah. And guess what? The text tells you, Jonah loved the plant. He loved it. His heart was attached to it so quickly. But then the next day, God raises up a worm to eat the plant, and the plant is gone. And guess what happens with Jonah? Jonah is back to being angry, frustrated, and he wants to die. And so God comes to him again with the question, Jonah In verse 9, do you do well to be angry? And he even adds it, a little phrase at the end. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? You see, there are three things I want to tell you about the importance of of this question that God lays out and the importance of the plant. The first one is this. God asked the question two times because he's trying to get Jonah and he's trying to get us to think about what is underneath our anger. God asked the question a second time because he wants Jonah to think, he wants us to think about what's behind our anger, what's under our anger, what is around our anger. He wants us to get through the anger and think about what is it that's actually making us angry. Do you ever get angry? You ever get angry at work? You ever get angry with, at home? You ever get angry with your closest companions, your closest friends? Do you ever get angry? Well, God says, well, think about it. Do you do well to be angry? Why are you angry? What's behind your anger? What's underneath your anger? One man said this and thought this was wonderful. He said, God is bringing Jonah to a point where his heart comes out off of his lips. God is asking the question, and he is exposing Jonah's heart because Jonah then responds to the question and exposes what is in his heart. And God wants us not to be controlled by our emotions, not to be controlled by the circumstances in our lives. You see, what's going on in Jonah's heart, what he has to think about is he is actually living for himself. And living for ourselves is a really, really deep idol. It's one of the deepest ways that sin shows itself in our lives. 
You see, it's really easy to push aside and dismiss and even ignore the fact that we're actually every day functionally living for ourselves. Sin is so deep and living for self is so deep that it's easy to not engage and not think about the fact that we're living for ourselves. Every day we wake up and we roll out of bed and all of our basic needs are met. In other words, the goal when we get out of bed each day is not to try to find water. It's not to try to find food. The goal for every day is not to figure out how in the world am I going to take care of myself if something happens to me physically. When we get out of bed, we understand that we have food and water, clothing, shelter, and a way to take care of ourselves if something were to happen to us physically. So we put something else in that blank of what am I going to live for today? Because my basic needs are met, so therefore, what is going to be the goal of today? And most of the time, oftentimes, our habit is to put self as the goal for the day. So we live to fulfill ourselves. We live for ourselves. Our main goal is to live for self almost every day. You see, sin isn't theoretical. Sin is real. It exposes itself in real people, in real time, in real lives, in real relationships. It is real. And God is asking Jonah this question, and he's asking me this question, and you this question. Do you do well to be angry? Because he wants you to think about where you're angry, and he wants you, more importantly, to think about why you're angry. Here's the second thing. God gives us the question the plan because he doesn't just want us to think deeply about what's under our anger. God is also showing us here with the plan. He's giving us a living illustration of the contrast between him, himself, and Jonah. God gives us the plan and asks the questions because he's showing us the contrast between Jonah and God. He says in verse 9, Jonah, do you well to be angry about the plant? And notice what Jonah says. Yes, at the end of verse 9. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And God responds, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah, you care for the plant. I care for people. Jonah, you care for the plant and I care for people. You see, when God saw the people acknowledging that they were rebelling against him and they were committing sin and they were violent and they were doing all kinds of inappropriate things, when God saw that they were willing to admit their weaknesses and admit their rebellion, God forgave. Remember? And oh, by the way, you know what was behind all that? God pursuing. God was pursuing Nineveh. That's why he sent Jonah. God was pursuing Nineveh, that's why he gave Jonah a message. God was pursuing Nineveh in the message that Jonah was to bring. 
God was telling them, look, you're broken, you're sinful, you're rebellious. And the the people turned to God, and God forgave. Jonah saw that the people were rebellious and wicked and evil. And Jonah saw that they acknowledged that. And Jonah got angry. Yes, he actually saw people who were acknowledging that they're sinful. He actually saw people finding mercy in God and receiving his grace, and he was angry. He was angry at God. Look at verse 2. Here's another contrast. Jonah even says that God is slow to anger. Jonah, on the other hand, the contrast is that Jonah is very quick in expressing his anger. Sound familiar? Anybody have a short fuse here? Jonah's fuse is short. He gets angry about the most ridiculous things, the most preposterous things. Actually, he gets angry about the most glorious things. And he does so very quickly. And God is full of love and mercy. God is slow to anger. And Jonah is not only angry, he's angry enough to die. And even more than that, as verse 9 tells you, he feels like he's justified in his anger. Does that connect with your life at all? It's not just that we're oftentimes quick to get angry, is it? It's that we feel very justified in our anger. As if, how could anyone ever question me? My anger is certainly justified. You see, God is showing us, and he's showing Jonah, Jonah, your love is for self, and my love is for others. Jonah had reduced the gospel, he had reduced life with God to this. He had reduced it and made it this small and and this insignificant. Jonah thought life with God is, I don't know, doing the right thing and keeping everything on the surface. And then, not only did Jonah keep everything on the surface, but Jonah was interpreting everything that happened through his own goals, his own plans, his own wants, his own desires. Do you see it? He thought, oh, this life with God thing is just easy. Let's just simplify it. I'm going to do the right thing, and then I'm going to interpret everything that happens through what I want. And if what I want or what I expect or my plans aren't met, then I'm going to be incredibly angry, even angry at God. Sound familiar? We do the same thing. And Jonah is angry, and his anger is so deep that he even thinks that he should die if something doesn't go his way. Sound familiar again? The dial of his heart was set on self, and he was full of pride He was full of control and wanting to control everything. And he even thought the plant was his. The gifts that God gives you, the plants of our lives, 
don't belong to us any more than this plant belonged to Jonah. And Jonah was so quick to fall in love with this plant and to be furious and even take him to deeper levels of anger with God when the plant was taken. Jonah was struggling with something that we all struggle with. Jonah thought that he had God, and he kept forgetting, he kept forgetting, he kept forgetting that it was God who had him. Jonah thought that God belonged to him, and he was forgetting over and over that he belonged to God. And maybe even more, it's not just that Jonah struggled with that. It's not just that Jonah struggled to remember that he belonged to God. He had to live like he belonged to God. He had to live like his life belonged to God. That means that he couldn't evaluate and interpret everything that happened through his wants and his desires and his goals. He had to die to all of that. Isn't it beautiful in a way that God in pursuing Jonah, in showing us that life with him is deeply relational, isn't it great that God never really gives Jonah what he wants? Jonah wants to run away from God, right? God says, no, you're not going too far. I'm pursuing you. Jonah wants the plant. God says, no, can't have the plant. Jonah wants Nineveh to be destroyed. Nope, that's not going to happen either. Jonah thinks he can be justified in his anger. Nope. He can't be justified in his anger either. Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't leave us to ourselves. Because if he did, all we would do is want to destroy everybody else, justify our existence, and think that we're right and that everybody else is wrong. And God in his grace is continuing to show us deeper, more deeply and more deeply, his mercy and his love for others. And he's constantly showing us how we love God at times just because it enables us to love ourselves. We don't really love God for God. We love God because we think that's the best way to love ourselves. And God doesn't give us what he wants. He continues to pursue us and change us. Well, here's the third thing. You see, it's not just that God wants to think, make us think about our anger and get underneath our anger. And it's not just that he's showing us the contrast between his love and Jonah's love. The third thing is that God is putting right in front of us one of the hardest challenges of life. One of the hardest challenges we face if you really hear the gospel and understand the gospel, one of the hardest challenges is that we have to receive and live by being unconditionally loved. And that is very uncomfortable. That is very off-putting. We struggle to believe that, and we struggle to live as if that's true every single day. It's so hard for us to live as if we believe that God really does unconditionally love us. And the reason why it's so hard is because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't deserve it. 
We are undeserving. And that's what makes God's unconditional love so threatening and so difficult and so hard to accept and live by. You get little glimpses of this at times in our lives, little glimpses of the difficulty of receiving and living by unconditional love. Have any of you ever experienced a surprise party of some kind? You know what that's like? You know what it's like to show up at a party that you weren't expecting, that is a complete surprise? Do you know what it's like to show up somewhere where some of your friends are? Do you know what it's like to show up and have them all cheering and are excited that you're there? Do you know what it's like to receive that kind of love from people because oftentimes, at least from my vantage point, whenever that's happened to me, which has been very few times in my life, Not only is it overwhelming that people are expressing their love, but I am there thinking to myself, what in the, why are these people doing this? I don't deserve any of this. If they really knew what was going on in my heart, they wouldn't love me. Or maybe there are times when I think, well, I guess I've got to keep doing all of this. Because if I ever stop doing this, then they might stop loving me. That's just, a, that's just a microcosm of the gospel, that God really does love us unconditionally. And when we're honest with ourselves, we're always thinking, no, there has to be a condition. There has to be something that I can do to show God why he should love me. Because most of the time we live our lives, if we're honest, acknowledging that we don't deserve that kind of love. And that's what makes it so amazing. That's what makes the love of God so amazing. The gospel, you see, is not a job description where God says, here it is, here's the new job description. Um, It's not that at all. Living with God is not only relational, it's a process. Relationships are always a process, and it's dynamic, and there's all sorts of unexpected things that are going to happen in your life with God, in my life with God, in our life as a church with God. There are always going to be things that are unexpected because it's a journey, it's a race, it's an adventure. You see, what was going on with Jonah is that he had an underdeveloped heart. His heart was so small and so shriveled that he was still trying to think about how everything should be conditional. He was struggling with the freeness of God's love and the unconditionality of God's love. His heart was underdeveloped. And through all that's going on in the book of Jonah, and in chapter 4 in particular, through all that's going on, God is saying, God, Jonah, don't you see Don't you get that my grace is far more glorious than what you're comfortable with? Don't you understand that my mercy reaches those that you would never, ever want to receive my mercy? Jonah, have you forgotten that my mercy reached you? And if my mercy reached you, Jonah, then who is anybody else that I should withhold my mercy from? 
Jonah, your heart is so underdeveloped, and what I'm doing is I'm taking grace and salvation and mercy deeper into your life. And what you're doing is you're just getting mad because you're not getting what you want and what you think that you deserve. Jonah was still living as if he was trying to justify his existence. And God was saying, if you understand what what I am and who I am and my grace and my mercy and my slowness to anger and in forgiving, Jonah, stop trying to justify your existence and realize the existence that I have created for you. Realize who I am for you. Jonah, I loved Nineveh in spite of their violence. Jonah, I love you in spite of your arrogance. Jonah, I am not going to negotiate with you. Jonah, you will never tame me. Jonah, I will never belong to you. Jonah, you belong to me. Jonah, I am working to bring you into submission. Dave, I'm working in your life to make you understand the depth of my mercy and grace. So you might say, why in the world is Jonah 4 in this way? Why is it that we have such an enigmatic ending? Why is this such an enigma? Certainly it's true that God is showing us ourselves, isn't he? He's saying, don't you see that your heart functions just like Jonah? Jonah has a sinful heart. We have sinful hearts. We get angry all the time about things that we have no real reason to be angry. We have a sinful heart that needs to be redeemed as well. But you know what else is here? Don't you think this has to be, at some level, autobiographical? Don't you think Jonah has to have written this? Who else could give us all these details that we've looked at together through the book of Jonah? Who else could do it? Who else could give us all these details that Jonah gives us about this conversation with God in the belly of the fish? Who else could give us these details? No one else could make Jonah look so bad. And it's not outwardly bad. I'm talking about inwardly. No one else would know these details except Jonah. And what if Jonah is trying to say to us that he has been freed from the need to defend himself? What if Jonah is writing this book to say, look, I've been freed from trying to defend myself, from trying to make myself look good. I've been freed from trying to justify my existence. I've been freed from living for the approval of everyone else. Maybe Jonah was thinking, I'm going to write this book and people are going to be confused for thousands of years. (laughs) What if Jonah is trying to tell you and what if he's trying to tell me That we must live our lives dependent on the grace of God. 
What if Jonah is trying to show us Jesus? You see, we're bent on living for ourselves. But Jesus came to give us himself. Jesus is the embodiment of the unconditional love of God. Jonah and we put conditions on everything and everyone and God. And Jesus is the one that has come to change and reverse and deal with that. And you see, beloved, that brings us right to the table. Remember, chapter 4 also tells you that Jonah went outside the city. Did you catch that? If you look in verse 5, Jonah goes outside the city to wait, supposedly to see judgment come down on Nineveh. Jonah was waiting to see Nineveh overthrown and judged and condemned. And when we gather at the table, guess what we're reminded of? Jesus also went outside the city. He didn't go outside the city to watch and wait for the city to be condemned and judged and overthrown. Jesus went outside the city to be condemned, to be judged, so that we would know God's grace, so that he would embody the grace of God by not only taking our sin and enduring the judgment of a holy God, but by giving us his perfect life and obedience, by giving us his death as a substitute, by giving us everything. As you come to the table this morning, remember that this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. This table is a declaration that God loves you, that Christ has paid everything. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, even you have, if you haven't come to the point in your life in which you're willing to admit that you're sinful and broken and you're rebelling against God, this table isn't for you. But know that Jesus is. The only place where your sin and rebellion will ever be dealt with is by you thinking about and connecting your life to Jesus Christ. But if you know that you're a rebel and you know that your heart is often very selfish, even to the point of getting angry because you don't get your way. If you know that that's true and you know that you are taking that to Christ and you're trying to connect all that Jesus has done in your life, this table's for you. It's for those who acknowledge that they belong to Jesus. And this table's for you because you need to not only hear about Jesus, but you need to taste and see 
that God is good and he is gracious. Remember that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the remission of your sins. Take and drink, take and drink and see that my life is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask the elders if they'll come forward, those that are helping assist today. As they're coming forward, remember that as we gather today, we're doing things differently as we take communion. We've only done this a few months, so we're still learning this together. So if you would, those in the middle two sections, if you'd come down the middle aisle and go on either side of the table and take the bread and the cup and then go around the outside and back to your seats, hold the elements and we'll take together. Those of you that are on the far sections, come down the middle, go to the table, and then if you can, go back to your seats along the wall and please hold the elements and we'll take together. Uh, For those of you that perhaps have allergies of any kind, um, this bread is at every table. This is the everything free bread. Um, So take this if you have any allergies. Hold it well, and we'll be together. Let me pray. Father, we are here because we are a needy people. Lord, our anger oftentimes is driven by selfishness and interpreting all that we experience through what we want, what our goals are. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us to ourselves. You are continuing to pursue us to take the truth of your gospel, your grace, your mercy, and drive it deeper into us. Lord, we come as needy people. So strengthen us as we eat this meal. Cause us, Lord, by the working of your spirit, cause us, Holy Spirit, to take the bread and the cup and to genuinely and truly feed on Christ, to connect all that we are to all that he is. Increase our faith, deepen our faith and love and hope. So Lord, use these elements to communicate our fellowship and communion with Christ. In your name, Jesus, amen.